Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey guys, thanks for joining. Now, we talk often on the Church and Culture podcast about how in order to engage in culture in a relevant way, we need to stay abreast to what's going on in culture. And that oftentimes means staying abreast to the societal trends that are happening all around us. And for that reason, we often use um, recent studies as starting points for the, a, lot of, a lot of the conversations that Jim and I have. And today's conversation will be no exception to that because um, Pew Research Center has recently um, released this, the results of a study that have shown that the future of Christianity in America um, May, be, may come to a bit of a surprise to some. Now, of course, if you've been listening to the Church and Culture podcast, this shouldn't be a surprise to you because Jim has mentioned on several occasions that Christianity is in a decline in the U.S. and it's changing quite drastically. Um, but certainly this new study has put that information in statistical terms that really reinforces what we've been talking about. But I just thought that maybe today we can discuss some of the implications of that. So first, Jim, would you mind just giving us the headlines of those study, of that study in case people are not familiar with it? Yeah, it, it got a lot of press uh, because there was, um, uh, I mean, almost every major news outlet I know picked up on it. You mentioned Pew Research Center. They uh, found that the number of Christians in the U.S., for their projections could fall below 50% by the year 2070. What Pew did was interesting. He, they modeled four hypothetical um, uh, scenarios in an attempt to forecast how the U.S. religious landscape might change over the next, as mentioned, 50 years. And the different scenarios were uh, formulated on whether what they called religious switching, how religious switching would go at various rates. In other words, would you leave Christianity and become a nun, or would you move from this faith to that faith and just all the different things at, uh, so what different rates there could be and speeds or stops and all those kinds of things. So you had four different models with all of these different um, possibilities. And they estimate that in 2020, about 64% of all Americans uh, identified as Christians, and that includes children. And then about 30% were nuns, and then 6% were other groups like Muslims and Jews and Hindus and, and Buddhists. The projections all showed, every model showed that uh, Christians of all ages will shrink from 64% to at least 54% and as possibly low as 35% um, by in 50 years. And during that time, the rise of the nuns will continue and uh, growing from the current base of 30% to at least 34%, possibly as high as a whopping 52% of the U.S. population. Now, these are not predictions. Uh, they're formal demographic projections, uh, and um, which is more intense. <laughs> you know, it's more, more based on something rather than just a prediction. And so what can be counted on in every scenario, every scenario they ran, is Christians continuing to shrink as a share of the U.S. population and the nuns or the unaffiliated continuing to grow in every single scenario. Hmm. Now, as I mentioned, 
this I'm sure was not a surprise to you. I mean, you've been studying culture for decades and you've written books <laughs> um, about this and what you've been noticing. Um, in other words, the writing has been on the wall for a while, even if for some this this is shocking or perhaps maybe they didn't know the extent until the study came out. But what, again, you've written books on this, so I know there's you have a lot that you could say on this, but could you give us just a couple of headlines in terms of how we got here? What have you been studying for the last couple of years that made this not a surprise to you? Let me give a bit of a longer answer to that, uh, sure. not a not a, a line or two, because and that's the beauty of the of the podcast that we don't have to talk in sound bites. Because you've you've asked a, a very important question: what what's happened? What what's driving this? Um, and um, most would say it's just happening because well, well, we live in a post Christian world. Yeah, but why are we living in a post Christian world? Well, the thinking is, uh, and from a social science perspective, is that processes like secularization and privatization and pluralization uh, have taken their inevitable toll. And all three of those are critical to understand. Secularization is the process by which something becomes secular. It, it's, it's a culture, cultural current uh, making things secular. And its effect is clear. Uh, secularization means that the church is um, losing its influence as a shaper of life and thought in the wider social order. And Christianity is losing its place as a dominant worldview. Uh, the late Richard John Newhouse once wrote that we live in a, a naked public square, uh, meaning that religious ideas and mores no longer inform public discourse. Uh, Christianity has ceased to be the motivating center of Western life. And the religious question is consciously or unconsciously pushed from the heart of human concerns. Uh, most people get that. But the next two dynamics are less clear, but they may even be more important. And that has to do with privatization and, and pluralization. Let me talk about those. Privatization is the process by which a chasm is created between the public and the private sphere in life. And spiritual things are increasingly put into the private sphere. So when it comes to things like business and politics and, or even marriage in the home, personal faith is, is bracketed off. Um, Ray Kroc, for example, who founded McDonald's, made McDonald's into a fast food franchise, was what's quoted as saying, uh, I believe in God, the family and McDonald's. And then he added, but when I get to the office, I reverse that order. Uh, that's privatization. And it's not just about priorities. It's about trivializing things. And I think that's the real most uh, uh, damning thing that, that privatization has done. The process of privatization left unchecked makes the Christian faith a matter of just personal preference, uh, trivialized to the realm of taste or opinion, um, meaning it's no more significant than your favorite color or your favorite food. Pluralization, the last of the three sociological processes coursing through our, our day, is the process where individuals are confronted with a staggering number of ideologies and faith options competing for our attention. Uh, sociologist Peter Berger once spoke of the traditional role of religion as a sacred canopy. In fact, that was the title of one of his books, uh, The Sacred Canopy, and it co covered all of contemporary culture. Religion, at least in terms of there being a God that life and thought had to consider, blanketed all of society and culture. Uh, today, that canopy is gone, replaced by, as he would say, millions of small tents or umbrellas by which we choose to dwell, our own individual, whatever we want it to be. And that may be the most devastating cultural dynamic of all, because inherent within the process of pluralization isn't just multiple faiths and worldviews contending for our attention, but the idea that they're all equally valid. 
They're all equally true. Um, I remember uh, a while back, I ran across a, um, a PBS, a book accompanying a, a PBS children's special, and it was on religion. And the way it put it was, and this gives you the mentality, I think, perfectly, it says searching for God has become like climbing a mountain. And since everybody knows there's not just one way to climb a mountain, mountains are too big for that, there are any number of ways up the mountain that you can take. So all of the ideas about God and all the religions of the world are just like different ways up the mountain. And all the names of God and all the world's religions all name and refer to the same God, which means everything is true. And of course, philosophy 101, if everything is true, then nothing is true. If everything is God, then nothing is God. You've made the term meaningless, which is why we now live also in a post-truth world, not simply a post-Christian world, a post-truth world. Uh, yet the real power of those forces is its effect on what um, I've called the squishy center. And uh, let me see if I can explain that because this all hangs together. So let me, let me keep at this if you'll let me. Um, if you have a couple of extremes, if you just draw a line, a couple of extremes on the one end would be hardcore secularists on the other end. Uh, let's just say that's 25% of the country. That's probably being generous, but let's just say you got 25% hardcore secularists. Uh, and then on the other end, you've got the hardcore believers. Let's make that 25%, just to make it easy math, uh, who are radically sold out to Jesus. Now in between those two poles, you have 50% that are in the middle. Um, and, uh, they're in the center and they move toward whatever is culturally most influencing, uh, what is most culturally persuasive at the moment, uh, whatever, wherever the culture is tending to mold people, shape people, pressure people. Um, in the past, uh, it moved them toward the Christian believing side of things, but culture has changed. It's not moving people that way anymore. It's not shaping people that way. Now, everything in culture is moving people toward the secular side of things. So if you're just kind of floating in the 50% and you're part of this squishy center, um, uh, in the past, if someone had asked you, are you a Christian? You would have said, well, sure. That was the cultural thing to do. And you would have gone to church, at least on you know Easter and Christmas and such. Um, there was pressure on you if you didn't, but now you don't have that. In fact, if anything, the, the popular thing to say is that you're nothing because that's the cultural thing to do. And you don't go to church because that's the cultural thing to do. That's what I mean by a squishy sinner. But make no mistake, they are moving increasingly away from all things related to the Christian faith because they have no anchor. And that's where the drift is, is simply taking them. Uh, they're floating on top of the cultural ocean, drifting with the current. Uh, and I'm not trying to be condescending. I mean, this is, this is culture's powerful and it will shape you. Um, but they have little or no ideological mornings or theological mornings or biblically illiterate. Uh, they're shaped by media. They're influenced by whatever's their media streams, whether it's Facebook or Instagram. And, but here's what's critical. This squishy center has also always been the heart of the Christian mission field. Um, the squishy center has always been the prime evangelistic target, if you will. Uh, its inhabitants are the ones that are, are, have been most open, the ones who represent, had represented the fields wide under harvest. And so the headline is also now they're not so open anymore. So these are some of the dynamics at play. As you describe all of these, yeah, everything that's going on in secular culture, I can't help but think like the way that we could can personify culture sometimes almost makes it seem like, you know, culture is this like big bully and that the church like is, 
is helpless, like that we haven't, we can't do anything. We're just, all of the stuff that you just described, something that's happened to us and happened to the church, but like without us, yeah, really being able to respond. But I can't help but wonder, doesn't the church or hasn't the church also had a role in what is happening now? Like, has this been everything that has, is this only what we have experienced or has been done to us? Or has the church played a role in the state of Christianity today as well? Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> this is another really big question. No, I mean, so it's like, have we played a role? Oh my goodness. And mm-hmm. this, this, is, this is not pleasant for me to walk through. But you're right. Just talking about secularization, privatization, and pluralization uh, in concert with the squishy center is not the whole story about the rise of the nuns and what's happening with all of these demographic projections. Particularly when you ask a nun, why are you a nun? You know, sure. uh, which is, you know, surprisingly few Christians have bothered to do. Um, because if you ask them, you know, they're not going to say, oh, well, I'm not anything because of secularization, privatization, and pluralization. Mm-hmm. I'm part of the squishy, or they'll say, I'm part of the squishy center. So I don't really have any convictions or haven't thought about this. No. According to them, and they'll give uh, three very strong indictments, and they're all leveled at the foot of the Christian church and individual Christians. Um, to borrow from an old Warren Zevon song, they would say lawyers, guns, and money. Um, let me unpack what I mean by that. Religion in general, and certainly Christianity, um, is perceived to be overly entangled with law and politics, um, filled with hateful, intolerant, judgmental aggression, and consumed with materialism and greed. Uh, lawyers, guns, and money. The, the money part is, is easy to understand. Uh, that's kind of low-hanging observation in terms of culture, whether it's through televangelist transgressions or megapastor materialism, um, money and religion have seldom proved a productive pairing in the eyes of the world. Uh, and and <laughs> we better say, and also in the eyes of God, but yeah. the most famously egregious, uh, if, if, in, cause I don't want to start naming current names, but people will could supply several from the media, but let's go back a little bit to be, uh, kind. The most famously egregious in recent history would have been Jim Baker, founder and host of the now infamous 700 Club, or the PTL Club, I'm sorry, um, which stood for Praise the Lord. But you may remember PTL soon became known for Pass the Loot, uh, as people would take it down. The rumored extravagance of using money for air-conditioned dog houses and gold-plated faucets uh, became um, emblematic of the widespread corruption present in the lives of a lot of televangelists and Christian leaders. In fact, we now know that, and and this is interesting to me, we now know that more people were disgusted with Baker's materialism and eventual financial fraud that sent him to prison than they were the sexual tryst he had with uh, his secretary. Oh, that's interesting. But less known, and now even more telling, is how lawyers and guns have come alongside money to form kind of this perfect storm, making people just want to reject religion altogether. Um, Take the lawyer's dynamic. Uh, Religion and politics are seen to just go hand in hand. And as if we're consumed with political power and advantage, the nuns believe that being religious, being part of an organized religion and being political um, are the same thing, are the same thing you know, uh, and you're a Christian, you're obviously, then obviously you're all of this politically. Um, In their minds, we politicized our faith and we stake out all of our positions in ideological terms. Um, And and interestingly, even though most would instantly think of like the Christian right or the Republican party or something like that, 
in their minds, it's it's doesn't matter whether it's the Christian right or the Christian left, whether it's we're talking about Jim Dobson or Jim Wallace. Uh, in their minds, all have reduced the public witness of the church to a political witness. Um, so it's it's more acute than ever because right now, in in you just see people treating politics like religion. I mean, it is their religion, and yeah. and so, and then you throw in the guns dynamic. Many of those outside of the Christian faith uh, think Christians no longer represent uh, what Jesus had in mind. That Christianity in our society is not what it, what it, in their minds is, it was meant to be. Mainly that we're homophobic, we're hypocritical, we're judgmental, we're intolerant, we're just plain mean. Um, and so this, the, yeah, I would say that we've, we've added to this. But don't you think though, that some people, I don't know, like we're human, right? And so Christian or not, we always tend to think like, well, the problem's not in the room. Like that, all the things that you just said, like a Christian might sit back and be like, well, that's not me. Like that's like everybody else. But apparently there's more, there's more that fit that caricature than maybe that we would like to admit or that maybe there are aspects of the way that we live that have contributed to that distaste in people's mouths for Christianity. Like, I just wonder if there is not a proper place for us to, even if we're not the specific person in mind who is, I don't know, mishandling money or bringing our politics into the equation, if there's not some type of, if, if maybe that doesn't even matter as much of we, but we need to like collectively own what the church has done if we're going to move forward, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yes. I want to, one thing that you mentioned there, how we, 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 we may not, it's maybe present in our lives, but we don't see it. Yeah. One of the things that I found of late, and again, I don't want to get into just unnecessarily inflammatory back and forths, but I'm, I'm a cultural observer on this. And so one of the things I've observed is that, um, uh, that, someone will say something, tweet something, post something um, that is so inflammatory. And, 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 it, and anyone would read it and say, that's, that's hateful. That's mean-spirited. That, that doesn't feel Jesus-y at all. But it was a Christian posting it. And if someone were to say, hey, I mean, uh, and challenge that a little bit, then it just makes another eruption happen. And then they start saying, but it's true. It's true. You can't handle the truth. And if you don't like the truth, then, then, you know, it, you're just being convicted and this is just the way it is. And that, and almost like, like their sense of truth is almost like a license for bad behavior and, and a yeah. bad spirit. And yet they, they don't, they don't self critique the spirit or the tone because they feel like they're just speaking truth. And truth is on their side. So that, so, so it's almost like this, wow, wow. How, how do I, how do you throttle that down? Because it's just like, no matter what you say, it almost inflames it more in their mind and in their yeah. heart, because now they almost feel like I'm, I'm just, I got to stand up for this truth even more boldly now. Sure. Um, but also to what you would say, um, you, you know, there's a play, I, I, I can't remember whether you and I were talking about this offline or not, but like, you know, so is there a place though for this collective lament? And that may have been where you were wanting to go with this. I don't know, but I, I, I do think there is a collective lament among many Christians at the state of things right now. Um, but I, I would say even more, what I would love to see is, is a state of repentance. 
that if there is lament, that it leads to repentance. Right? There's, there's, there's just a repentant spirit that needs to be here. And let's take it away from politics now and take it back to, to, to you know, the, the topic at hand. There's just little heart for the lost. There's just, just there's no heart for the lost. And, and, and when I, so many Christians speak and interact with them as if they are the enemy. And there's no sense of Jesus' heart toward a lost world, no sense of Jesus' heart toward the nuns. Uh, there's no sense of Luke 15, for example, where um, the only time in all of scripture that Jesus told not one, not two, but three straight parables, all to make the same point because he was so exercised that they were missing it. And as, as I'm sure many will know or remember, Luke 15 starts off with Jesus hanging out with sinners and um, people of ill repute and um, some Pharisees or religious folk observed it and said, I mean, can you believe this guy? I mean, rumor has it, he even eats with them. I mean, you know, they were just, and he just lambasted. And Jesus heard them and got so upset. He told, again, three straight parables, try to rapid fire truth into them about just the heart of God and, and how much these people matter to God. And uh, famously, it was the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son, the prodigal son. And in all three cases, something of great value was, was lost and it was, and everything was done to try to reach out and find and bring back. And, and in all three cases, a huge raucous celebration at the end. And it was, you know, this is the heart of God. You know, this is not the enemy. Um, and, and so there was this, um, that, that, uh, that's just seemingly getting so lost in, in our day. I'm so glad that you mentioned repentance because as you've, as you've mentioned this study, the results of it have made a lot of, um, there's been a lot of talk about the results and what we should do. And I, and I think I've been reading a lot of people saying or immediately looking to, well, revival, revival is the solution. We just, we need to be praying for revival. And I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But I also like what you said about how repentance may be a necessary first step to that, that maybe we just don't like being uncomfortable or being convicted, but that that is a necessary first step to where, I don't know, to, to hope for there to be um, change or for us to make different um, steps in terms of reform. And so I'm curious in your mind, like, what do you think revival could even look like? Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you study the awakenings and revivals, um, which, which I've done some, um, it, they were always preceded by repentance always preceded by periods of great repentance, uh, whether it's by few or many. Um, but, you know, the classic understanding of revival is this, this top-down, just movement of the Holy Spirit that just sweeps like the first great awakening or the second great awakening. Or, um, and, and, and there's a lot of people that say, you know, just pr they're praying for that. And that well and good. I, I, I would love to see that happen, but I also feel that simply praying for that is 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 not all that we can be doing. It could borderline passive, and and we're called to be active. I mean, we 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 need to be doing the kinds of things that are already been outlined in Scripture for us to be doing that we need to repent and then be about. Um, and so, the kind of revival, small R, that I would love to see sweep, is um, I'd love to see churches turn outward, and not be so turned inward to really be on mission and understand that they're to be on mission. And that when they throw open their door, they try to reach out. They're trying to reach out to the unchurched and the nuns, the very people that we're talking about, 
and um, and that they would uh, yeah just turn outward in terms of mission. Um, and this is I'm gonna, the next thing I'm going to say. You probably heard me say so many times you're sick of it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ring this bell with every fiber of my being till my dying breath. And that is we've got to get away from spiritual narcissism. It's killing the church. It's killing the mission. It's undermining the mission is killing the church. And if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about or hasn't, you know, heard that explored, narcissism, you know, Narcissus in Greek mythology was a character who fell in love with his own reflection and stopped and stared at a pool of water, staring at himself until so captivated and consumed with himself that he eventually fell in and drowned and died. It, it, the rest of his life was spent staring at his own reflection. And that's how he spent his life. Uh, and from that, we get the term narcissism, the I, me, mine mentality. Uh, a spiritual, a lot of people look at the, uh, like a contemporary church or a contemporary model church, and they might critique it and say, well, they're just trying to get warm bodies. They're just a, giving in a consumer mentality. They're just kind of giving people what they want. And, and you know, it, that's not where narcissism has crept into the church. Where narcissism has crept into the church is when the believer makes it all about themselves. That church is to be all about them and my parking spot where I want to sit and I want to have this kind of Bible study and I want to I want to go where I like the music and it's where, where what the kind of I want to have and and we talk about things like I want to go where I'm fed as opposed to learning how to feed yourself or feed others. I want to go where my needs are met as opposed to meeting the needs of other people. Uh, I want to go where, um, I, you know, they'll walk out of a worship service and say, well, I didn't get anything out of that. And it never enters their mind that the service, a worship service has nothing to do with whether you get something out of it. It has to do with whether or not God got something out of it. And so it, it's a, it's a, it's an insidious thing that just, you know, that where there's no sacrifice, no sense of dying to self in order to do what it would take to reach someone far from God. And so as a result, some of the most basic things a church could do to be outreach oriented are resisted because it would go against the spiritual narcissism so deeply entrenched in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you see yourself as not only the consumer, but the customer and, and the one to be served, then you're not going to do anything that goes against that or dies to yourself to reach someone else. And so, you know, you know, it, Mac, a little forward mantra that we pull out when needed. It's not about you. You know, I don't like music. It's not about you. Well, this was too, well, it's not about you, but I don't want to park or it's not about you. It's about the person who isn't even here yet. Mm -hmm. And if we can't die to ourselves enough, um, particularly under the gaze of a, of a savior who stretched out his hands and said, pierce away. And, and we just don't want to be inconvenienced when he died to reach that person. Well, so there's, there's a real revival that needs to be there. And one last thing, just because I'm worked up. <laughs> there's a personal evangelism. We've gotten away from personal evangelism. We've got to recapture a sense that, that, uh, that it's an individual responsibility of a Christian to intentionally build relationships with people who are far from God, to actually seek those relationships out, do what it takes to, to build them. And in the context of that relationship, share our story and, and do some, some, uh, you know, say, and then, you know, find appropriate moments to say, hey, why don't you check out our online campus or something like that? Or, hey, here's a good book maybe you could read. So this whole idea of having a personal responsibility to reach out to our friends and family and, and people that we could um, connect with. And then, the, then of course, the, the other sweep of repentance, I'm giving you really long answers in this podcast. I'm here they, for it. <laughs> but um, it's, is we, you know, try to, as churches and, and individuals, let's, let's get away from lawyers, guns and money. You know, uh, let's let's go with Jesus over partisanship. 
Let, let's go with love over enmity. Let's go with generosity and simplicity over materialism and greed. We can do that. And, and, and we can stop the bleeding that uh, is so apparent from these self-inflicted wounds. I love the personal component of all of the, the, the vision of revival that you just gave, that even if you think that, oh, I wasn't part of the problem, I'm not like that, that like revival requires that everybody take a look um, inside and that everybody be a part of the solution. And I, I love the way that you spelled that out with how you envisioned revival. So I appreciate that. Um, I did just want to mention though that I mean, this the study that we're mentioned that we're talking about was specific to the U.S., but um, these trends are are or are not specific to the U.S. Like, if we look outside of the U.S., what are we seeing about the rise or decline of Christianity elsewhere? Depends on where you look. Uh, in the West, uh, which I'll, let's just say, like United States, Canada, Western Europe, uh, it's we're all kind of equally in bad shape. Uh, in fact, it's worse in places like France or UK or Canada, they're, they're, you know, this, we're, we're moving faster than they did, but they started sooner and are still a little bit further down the road. Um, but we'll catch up fast because it's happening faster here at a greater speed, a greater accelerated rate. But if you look at the global South, wow, different story. Um, the global South is where Christianity is now growing. It's where it's the fastest growing pockets of Christianity. The global South is um, where uh, you, you see enormous Christian influence on culture. I mean, it's 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 a it's really a tale of two, you know, two parts of the world. And so there, this what we've been talking about is not playing out. It's where Christianity is 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 at its most robust and rigorous. When you say the global South, you're talking about like South America, Africa, Africa. About that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so that's kind of interesting because when we think about missions, we tend, we've traditionally always thought about, you know, the U S sending missionaries to other countries, but based on what you've described, it almost sounds like really, we, we might be receiving missionaries from other countries considering um, the state that, that we're in. So that could be a really good thing for us, I think. What kind of unique perspectives do you think people might bring to the U.S. from other countries that maybe would help us to move towards revival? Well, one of the things that you see, and in, 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 as you know, I've done a fair amount of international travel. And when you go to whether it's places in South America or Africa or others, um, their, their raw passion for Jesus is just, it's palpable. I mean, it's just a raw passion for Jesus. And, and it's, it's more charismatic um, uh, and even Pentecostal, uh, but there's more of a uh, kind of more of a signs and wonders feel to it. Um, so it's not just like tongues, it's like, but like, you know, you know they, they have a real sense that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and active and just, that's just, um, part of that very experiential, even, you know, it does, that may be the best way. They really have a, a deep experiential aspect of it. Very vibrant, very expressive. Um, they're, they're, they're conservative. It, their conservatism is interesting. I, I they, they would be, um, it wouldn't play well among certain pockets in the United States. Um, but that's not saying it's wrong. Here's, here's what I mean by their way this. they're, they're very conservative theologically. But in their politics, 
it, from a Western perspective, they might be considered more uh, less conservative in terms of social issues. And when you consider how deeply entrenched in poverty that you know many of the much of the global South has been, that that makes sense. They so they 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 might be, and again, this is crass, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because there's obvious exceptions, but like theologically conservative and you know politically maybe a little more liberal, even though but not completely liberal, liberal on or, and or more um, uh, in terms of like social justice issues and social issues related to poverty and, and such of that nature, but on issues like LGBT, LGBTQ community or trans or marriage, they're very conservative. So it's this blend of um, that would be, um, you know, that here in, in the United States, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, you're, you're, it, it, it kind of takes something from all the camps and puts it yeah. together. Um, and, and again, some would say, well, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> some would say, I don't know what to make of that, but it is where there is this, um, uh, great concern for the poor and, 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 and that, and, 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 uh, but very conservative with their theology often and with their social stances on, uh, uh, social moral issues. And this is why in the Anglican communion, communion that a lot of Anglican churches in the United States, not liking either the drift of the Episcopal church, which is the American branch of the Anglican that has gone extremely in their minds, liberal. And even many of the Anglican churches, they have left, separated themselves and placed themselves under, for example, an African bishop that is more theologically conservative. And so you, you'll find and that you, you know, this kind of blends into this, you'll find uh, an American Anglican church in Nashville or something, and they're under the spiritual authority of a bishop in Africa. Hmm. Well, I think it makes sense. And I think it would be a healthy step for us to look to where Christianity is growing um, and take as many notes as we can also to receive that influence and um, in biblically appropriate ways, but then, yeah, also have that humble posture mm -hmm. of what role have we played in the fact that America is where we are right now, but then what can we hope for? What, what we might we have to change within ourselves and within the church to, I don't know, have the hope of a different kind of future. So this has been so helpful, Jim. Thank you for all of the expertise that you've brought to this subject. Right. I think it's given us a lot to think about. So, um, well, we are out of time for today. So we hope you'll tune in again next week for another great conversation.